Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, July 24th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Biden announces new abortion and contraception measures. The U.S. and U.K. launch fresh strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Hamas rejects an Israeli deal. The UAE is accused of funding political assassinations in Yemen. The UN's migration agency puts out an appeal for $7.9 billion. The Supreme Court allows agents to cut the Texas-Mexico border razor wire. A UN advisor criticizes the UK's crackdown on environmental protesters. A leading cancer institute retracts or corrects dozens of studies. Amazon is fined for excessive surveillance of its workers. And the doomsday clock is kept at 90 seconds to midnight. In our first story, Biden announces abortion and contraception measures on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Forbes, NBC, the Associated Press, and the Wall Street Journal. U.S. Democratic President Joe Biden on Monday marked the 51st anniversary of the historic Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, which established a constitutional right to abortion but was later overturned in 2022 by announcing plans to provide more access to abortion medication and contraception. Biden's plan, which he outlined to his task force on reproductive health care access, includes expanding coverage for no-cost contraception through the Affordable Care Act and giving federal employees better access to contraception through guidelines provided to insurers. The administration has also come up with a plan to better educate patients and healthcare providers about the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, which requires hospitals to provide emergency care to patients when medically necessary. But whether abortions should be included under EMTALA is a matter the Supreme Court is scheduled to take up this year. In remarks made Monday, Biden reiterated his administration's desire for Congress to pass legislation that would restore the abortion rights women had before Roe's reversal, saying he would immediately sign such a bill into law. Also on Monday, Vice President Kamala Harris made a speech in Wisconsin focused on abortion, which has been restricted in some states, including Wisconsin, since the end of Roe. Biden's new measures come as he's expected to launch his first campaign rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday with a focus on abortion access. Melissa's laid out the facts for us. Now let's check out these narrative spins on this divisive story. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from MSNBC. The Biden administration's attempts to expand access to abortion and contraception in the face of Republican-imposed restrictions is an important first step in protecting women's health in a post-Roe world. The fight must continue because this isn't just about abortion, but women's health in general. The overturning of Roe should be enough to galvanize women to push back in several ways, including at the ballot box. Here's the Republican narrative from Breitbart. The case against Biden is clear. A vote for him is a vote for someone whose priority in a second term will be codifying the rights of women at the expense of the vulnerable unborn nationwide. Already, his administration has done everything it can short of getting legislation through Congress, including executive orders and ordering unelected bureaucrats to issue health guidances to preserve as much abortion on demand as it can. Biden and the Democrats don't believe in the sanctity of life. 
And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the prediction community at Metaculus.com. This one says there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before January of 2030. The U.S. and U.K. launch new strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.K. government's official website, the Associated Press, and Hussein al-Azizi's ex-page. The U.S. Department of Defense has confirmed in a joint statement with the U.K., Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, and Bahrain that an additional round of proportionate and necessary strikes against Houthi targets took place on January 22nd. Strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. took place with support from the four other countries. Pentagon's statement accused the Houthis of illegal and unjustifiable attacks on international commercial vessels in the Red Sea since November, including against two U.S.-owned merchant ships. Within an off-the-record background Pentagon briefing, a senior defense official further commented that eight Houthi locations were targeted at approximately 4 p.m. Eastern Time with the use of Tomahawk land attack missiles manned aircraft from the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, as well as precision-guided munitions. The UK's Ministry of Defense has further revealed that four Royal Air Force Typhoon FGR-4s, supported by two Voyager tankers, used Paveway 4 precision-guided bombs to target two military sites as part of the joint operation. The operation was the second set of coordinated strikes by the US and UK against the Houthis this month having previously struck 60 targets in 28 locations and came following a conversation between U.S. President Joe Biden and U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak earlier on Monday. Following the strikes, Hussein al-Ezi, a Houthi member within the Yemeni Foreign Ministry, has stated there will be no change in Houthi policy in the Red Sea until the brutal aggression against Gaza has stopped. Thank you, Scott. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from The Telegraph. The strikes targeting the Iranian-backed Houthis have come after diplomatic efforts by the U.S. and its allies failed to deter the rebels from further operations against international commercial shipping and U.S. and U.K. warships. Decisive action against the militants proves that the West stands united in defense of international law and free trade. Since military power seems to be the only language the Houthis and Iran understand, the rules-based international order must not shy away from taking further action if necessary. Press TV counters with the establishment critical narrative. With the U.S.-British aggression against Yemen, the West's moral bankruptcy in defense of its so-called rules-based order is now on full display. While Washington supports Israel's genocidal Gaza campaign, it's now bombing Yemen for the Houthis daring to stand up for Palestinians by targeting Israeli-linked ships. As so often, the latest U.S. aggression is a recipe for more, not less, violence and instability. The West has deliberately expanded the Israel-Hamas war to distract from Israeli war crimes and will suffer the consequences of its heavy-handed actions. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculus community. This one's saying there's a 10% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. Hamas rejects an Israeli deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, Axios, Middle East Monitor, the New York Times, and the Associated Press. According to an anonymous Egyptian official who spoke to the Associated Press on Tuesday, Hamas has rejected an Israeli proposal for another hostage release deal, which would have likely included a two-month ceasefire. 
The deal, however, reportedly didn't include a framework to end the war completely, something Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said won't happen until Hamas is destroyed. The proposal delivered to Hamas via Qatari and Egyptian mediation reportedly posited a multi-phase agreement that exchanged all Israeli hostages held in the Gaza Strip for the release of a significant amount of Palestinian prisoners, the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza's population centers, and increased freedom of movement within the Strip. As mediation efforts continue, U.S. Middle East envoy Brett McGurk was in Egypt on Tuesday for active discussions working toward the release of hostages and securing a humanitarian pause in the fighting. McGurk was also set to discuss Israel's military operations and potential efforts to protect civilians, in addition to continuing to explore the idea of a Saudi normalization with Israel. Meanwhile, in Gaza, the Israeli military said that it had completed its encirclement of, of Khan Yunis in the south of the Strip, with reports of intense clashes and a surge of Israeli tanks and troops into areas around the city's still-functioning hospitals. The Israeli military reported that 24 of its soldiers were killed in southern Gaza on Monday, making it the deadliest day for Israeli forces since the war began. In one incident, Palestinian militants seemingly fired a rocket-propelled grenade, setting off explosives Israeli troops had rigged in two buildings, killing 21. The total Israeli military death toll since the ground war began in late October now stands at 219. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 25,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation in the Strip. The official Israeli death toll on October 7 stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Those are some grim facts, Melissa. We have narrative spins on this story, starting with the pro-Palestine narrative from the nation. Israel is losing its war in Gaza. After over three months and 25,000 dead Palestinians, Israel has failed to release hostages via military operations to kill Hamas's top leaders or to create conditions advantageous to ending this long and drawn-out conflict. Even then, if Israel did manage to achieve the majority of its goals, it would still be left without a clear plan of action for the day after the war. Destroying a group like Hamas is a fool's errand, and Netanyahu has dug Israel into a hole it will have a tough time climbing out of. Israel should accept a comprehensive ceasefire. Here's the pro-Israel narrative from the Daily Beast. Though, of course, this war has not been easy, Israel has made steady progress in Gaza, first neutralizing Gaza City before moving on to other population centers like Khan Yunis. Israel has substantially degraded Hamas's military capabilities and leadership, and even partially degraded elite Hezbollah units stationed along Israel's northern border. Indeed, as Israel's enemies should recognize, Israel's raw military power should not even be up for debate, and the country will fight and negotiate as it sees fit to achieve its goals. Next up, the BBC investigates UAE-funded political assassinations in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reprieve, Middle East Eye, BuzzFeed, and BBC News. A new BBC investigation has found that the UAE, a key partner of the Western-backed and Saudi-led international coalition against the Iran-aligned Houthi rebels, has funded more than 100 politically motivated assassinations in Yemen 
over a three-year period starting in 2015. This comes as a documentary from BBC Arabic, American Mercenaries Killing in Yemen. Airing on BBC Two narrates how the U.S.-based private military Spear Operations Group was hired to carry out targeted killings and train the Emirati-backed Southern Transition Council. Additionally, the report claims that former al-Qaeda members, including a high-ranking official, have allegedly been recruited to work with the council in southern Yemen in a security capacity, with court documents showing that at least one of them was offered release from prison in exchange for carrying out assassinations. Most of those said to have been killed extrajudicially on Emirati orders were members of Yemen's branch of the popular international Sunni Islamist movement, Muslim Brotherhood, which is banned in several Arab countries, including in the UAE, where the royal family sees it as a threat to their rule. Only 23 out of the 160 people killed between 2016 and 2018 reportedly had links to terrorism. According to apparent lists of assassination targets that BBC obtained, the award-winning lawyer Huda al-Sarari and the politician Ansaf Ali Mayo were among those whose killings had been directed by the UAE. In response to BBC, Emirati officials claimed that all these claims were false. Allegations that the UAE hired American mercenaries to carry out a targeted assassination program against its political enemies in war-torn Yemen first emerged in 2018, with BuzzFeed News detailing a failed operation to kill Mayo based on the accounts of two participants that were corroborated by drone surveillance footage. Thank you for those fascinating facts, Scott. We'll start with a narrative A from Barron's. Though this investigation has just been released, its claims are all too similar to others made in the past, which have already been proved false and politically motivated. Should any credible allegations of wrongdoing in its counterterrorism operations ever come to light, the UAE will rigorously investigate them. However, there will be no need, given the lack of credibility to these allegations, once again. And Narrative B comes from TRT World. This new BBC documentary confirms what several other investigations have found over the past years, that the UAE has indeed hired mercenaries to carry out high-profile political killings in Yemen and advance its geopolitical ambitions in the Middle East. It's disturbing that the UAE still denies its actions when all evidence points to the contrary. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous community that says there's a 50% chance that Yemen will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by January 2028. I feel like the BBC still carries weight that the networks in the United States don't. I I feel like when we were maybe back in the 90s, if it was announced that there was going to be a big show on CBS, it would have been a, a big deal. Now, I don't think... I don't think it would Mm. the way that this BBC doc is. Sure. Maybe the American companies have expanded too much, branched out in too many different directions. Maybe maybe the tail's wagging the dog. Maybe those networks just don't choose to put important programming like that on. Maybe it's the other way around. Mm. The UN Migration Agency seeks $7.9 billion to help 140 million people. Here are the facts as agreed upon by UN News, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, the Daily Star, Pew Research Center, and The Week. On Monday, the Geneva-based International Organization for Migration, or IOM, said it is seeking $7.9 billion in 2024 to save lives and protect people on the move. IOM's first global appeal is reportedly aimed at strengthening efforts to support at least 140 million people 
including migrants and the communities in which they live, as well as reduce the growing scale of displacement. The objective is to raise funds from individuals, private sector donors, and governments to manage irregular and forced migration, which it claims has reached unprecedented levels. The fundraising goal includes $3.4 billion dedicated to the immediate, life-saving needs of those currently in transit. Another $2.7 billion set aside will be used to provide solutions to forced displacements, including due to climate change. Previously, the agency had claimed the number of international migrants grew to 281 million in 2020, despite COVID-era travel restrictions. 3.6% of the world's population lived outside of their country of birth. Meanwhile, according to IOM's Missing Migrants Project, at least 60,000 people have died or disappeared during perilous migration journeys, including from North Africa across the Mediterranean to Europe over the past nine years. Thanks, Melissa. We have three narratives on this story, starting with Narrative A from National Post. The UN's migration agency must be well-funded to protect millions of displaced people who take dangerous journeys to reach greater freedom, yet contribute to global prosperity and progress by generating nearly 10% of the world's economic output. Ignoring migrants' plight comes at a greater cost, not just in terms of money, but in more significant danger to the international community through human trafficking and smuggling. Here's Narrative B from Bloomberg. Migrants will keep coming to the U.S. and Europe because they flee en masse from disorder toward more stable locations. A coherent international policy is required to deal with the systemic macroeconomic issues that cause an arc of human misery and uprooting, such as poverty, conflict, and climate change. Simply increasing funding to fix the reality will not solve the growing problem and subsequent economic burden of population displacement. And another nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 50% chance that at least 176,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. from 2021 to 2024. The Supreme Court allows agents to cut razor wire at the Texas-Mexico border. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, ABC News, NBC, Politico, and Forbes. In a 5-4 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday allowed federal agents to remove razor wire installed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the U.S.-Mexico border. Texas had installed the wire to prevent illegal migration across the border. The Biden administration's attorneys had alleged that Texas' border policy interfered with Border Patrol agents' ability to perform their duties to enforce federal immigration laws. However, Abbott termed Texas's razor wire an effective deterrent to illegal migration and said that he would continue to defend Texas's constitutional authority to secure the border. Monday's order overturned a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling blocking the removal of concertina wire the Texas military department installed along the Rio Grande over the past three years. While the top court granted President Biden's emergency plea, the ruling is temporary as the Texas-Biden administration battle continues over Abbott's Operation Lone Star, an effort to crack down on border crossings. Texas has laid around 46 kilometers, or 30 miles, of razor fence. This is in addition to buoys along the Rio Grande River, which Mexican officials claim violates international law. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with a Republican narrative from Fox News. The razor wire is a simple and effective deterrent to an untenable wave of illegal immigration. 
a phenomenon actively aided and abetted by the ineffective left-leaning policies of the Biden White House. What the Supreme Court has now done with Monday's ruling is to make way for a worsening of one of the worst crises the country has ever faced. And the Independent brings us the Democratic narrative. Operation Lone Star is inhumane. It's maiming, killing, and dehumanizing entire families of desperate people looking to the U.S. for a better life. Explosive revelations have shown the migrants are being denied even water by Texas officials amid soaring temperatures. Thanks to the Supreme Court, the brutal and punishing barbed wire can now be removed, and the Biden administration can pursue more humanitarian and effective border control operations. Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative, saying there's a 3% chance that the U.S. will deploy military forces in Mexico without the cooperation of the Mexican government before 2029. A U.N. advisor is distressed by the U.K.'s crackdown on environmental protesters. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, the U.N. Economic Commission for Europe, and The Guardian. Michael Forst, the U.N.'s Special Rapporteur on Environmental Defenders, released a two-page statement Tuesday claiming that U.K. politicians are unfairly cracking down on environmental protesters, putting them at risk of threats, abuse, and even physical attack. Forrest visited the UK from January 10th through 12th to meet with government officials and environmental activists, including non-governmental organizations, climate protesters, and lawyers. He said he received extremely worrying information about severe crackdowns on environmental defenders in the UK that infringed on their right to peacefully protest. He added that politicians have been using the new Police, Crime, Sentencing, and Courts Act of 2022 to prosecute protesters for public nuisance, a criminal offense carrying up to 10 years imprisonment. He also said that the Public Order Act of 2023 is being used to stymie protest. Last month, authorities used the Public Order Act of 2023 to sentence a protester from the Just Stop Oil activist group to a six-month prison term for his role in a protest that blocked a public road. Groups such as Just Stop Oil have engaged in several disruptive demonstrations at high-profile events such as major sporting events and musical performances. Forrest added that some protesters have been forced to wear electronic ankle tags, while others have been subject to a 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew and geolocation tracking. Currently, defendants charged with a crime may be on bail for up to two years after their arrest and before their criminal trial. The U.N. rapporteur went on to condemn politicians for their alleged toxic discourse that has a chilling effect on the exercise of fundamental freedoms. Thanks, Melissa. We have left and right narrative spins on this story. The Independent starts us off with the left narrative spin. The U.K.'s conservative government has been infringing on the basic right to peaceful protest, and thankfully, the U.N. is calling out this undemocratic behavior. Using government force and passing laws to criminalize protests is always wrong particularly in this case, because it stops activists from speaking about the climate crisis. Climate defenders are heroes fighting on behalf of everyone, and they should be protected instead of being prosecuted. And here's the right narrative from GB News. Unhinged protests from groups such as Just Stop Oil have erupted throughout the UK, and hardworking Brits have had enough. While left-wing elites may try to paint these radical and polarizing demonstrations as peaceful, they're anything but. These protesters instigate clashes with ordinary citizens and police and do all they can to ruin public events. 
The UK allows and promotes peaceful protests, but these climate extremists are beginning to infringe upon the population's basic right to live undisrupted. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that greenhouse gas emitted globally in 2030 will be at least 43 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute retracts or corrects dozens of studies. The facts on this story are agreed upon by the New York Post, the Harvard Crimson, CNN, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston has moved to retract or correct 58 published studies that were found to contain manipulated data. Newcastle University molecular biologist Sholto David, who spends his free time analyzing scientific papers, discovered the fraudulent stories. Over 50 papers are being reviewed, including four co-authored by the Institute's chief executive and president, Dr. Lori Gilmcher. So far, 31 are being corrected and six are retracted. A blog published by David earlier this month titled Dana Farberications at Harvard University, referring to the Institute's affiliation with Harvard, showed images that suggested the researchers manipulated images, including using Adobe Photoshop to make duplicates and had potential data errors. The papers in question covered experiments on immune cells and blood cancer multiple myeloma, among other topics. David found copied and pasted images of Western blots, a method used to identify proteins, as well as a duplicated image of mice from the first day of an experiment pasted onto the results of day 16. Others seem to show images stretched and rotated, which suggests deliberate manipulation. Regarding the rest of the papers flagged by David and his January 2nd blog post, DFCI said three required no further action, arguing that the allegations against those were not supported by our analysis. The other 16 are still under review, as the alleged manipulated data in them were collected in labs not belonging to the four Institute researchers. The Institute's Research Integrity Officer, Dr. Barrett Rollins, said the discrepancies found don't necessarily provide evidence of an author's intent to deceive, adding that there must be a careful fact-based examination. Okay, those were the facts, and here's a narrative A from Nature. From cancer to COVID and across the medical community, fraud in critical trial data is running rampant. This often happens due to the paper mill problem, where third-party firms churn out countless fake studies. More must be done to determine the trustworthiness of studies before they're utilized in determining the treatment of patients. And narrative B comes from the fair observer. Fraud in a few clinical trials doesn't discount the U.S.'s position as the global leader in healthcare and research. Health centers at schools like Harvard, John Hopkins, and Cornell still produce the finest research and apply the greatest medicine. They're life-saving institutions, which is why countless patients from around the world visit the U.S. every year. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that in 2030, there will be at least 142,000 medical scientist jobs in the U.S. Publish or perish. We incentivize these uh, these researchers to come up with eye-catching and uh, provocative and hopeful results to their studies. And this is what you get. It's true. One of the foundations of a good scientist is having to be willing to be wrong in the end. I mean, of a lifetime of research. Right. I mean, <laughs> you have to be beyond reproach. I'm sure I, I bet you in some of these cases, like, oh, there were these dots on this experimented on frog, but we didn't get a good picture of it. 
all right, so let's take a picture from the first day and put some dots on it. And that is what it was. Like they could even be that much, but right. you just can't, can't do that stuff. Like, like yeah. it's, uh, like yeah. I, I bet you a lot of this was just like, oh, I accidentally erased those pictures. Let's throw one together. Oh, the light's better on this right. way. Let's rotate it. But I forgot you to, know, to document every single moment of. And also now there was a time when not very long ago when, oh, it was Harvard said this or such and such said this, you know, an appeal to authority bias. Like because this person said it, I believe it. Now it's mm-hmm. almost because this big person or thing said it, I believe it less. People are so skeptical of institutions they don't trust, you know? Yeah. Oh, the president said it. I don't like it. Oh, you know, oh, right. Trump came up with this vaccine. I don't like it. Oh, Biden came up with this vaccine. I don't like it. Wait, what? What's going? What's what's going on here? Yeah, um, everyone's uh, spinning. Everyone's just floating around in yeah. space right now, looking yeah. for something to grab onto. Which is kind of why we're here. Grab onto us, everybody. France fines Amazon thirty-five million dollars for monitoring employees too intrusively. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, France twenty-four, CNIL, Bloomberg, and BBC News. The French Data Protection Authority, or CNIL, Tuesday fined Amazon's warehouse business $35 million for using an excessively intrusive system to monitor employee performance. The authority said the fine, at about 3% of Amazon France Logistique's annual 2021 revenue of 1.1 billion euros, was nearly unprecedented. It said several thousand employees were affected by the systems. The privacy watchdog found that Amazon France Logistique's policies included tracking inactivity of over 10 minutes, put workers under pressure, and breached EU privacy rules. The authority described Amazon's system of measuring every work interruption with such precision as illegal and excessively intrusive. It also called out the firm's policy of storing such employees' data for 31 days. The authority also fined Amazon for having insufficient security on its video surveillance. The e-commerce giant, however, defended itself by saying the French watchdog's findings were wrong. Amazon previously faced similar issues at its UK warehouses. A British parliamentary panel report later viewed the company's surveillance practices as micromanagement and as causing distrust. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from TechCrunch. France is absurdly singling out Amazon for simply having a super efficient warehouse management system. The logistics sector is peppered with similar measures and systems in places across the world. The scale at which Amazon functions requires an intricate system to keep the company's operations flexible and adaptive. Some tweaks can be made according to local needs and laws, but this massive fine defies logic. And here's Narrative B from ABC News. Measuring employee productivity to this extent reduces workers to robots that don't get breaks or social time at work. Companies should not be allowed to forget the humans at the heart of their operations. Signaling there's a problem if an item is scanned too quickly is just one example of poor work standards at Amazon. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 50% chance that Amazon will deliver some products by drone by May of 2026. I feel like we've been hearing about drone delivery for like a decade. I don't know. Oh, maybe yeah. was, I feel like they, they, we were like on the cusp of that. Was that just because we were in Seattle and that maybe. was the talk? Uh, did, but, uh, did they do some trials and it didn't do so well? Like um, maybe like but, there were some security issues with it or they'd have to like break into your window or something. 
Like, like if you had asked me, is there already drone delivery going on? I would have said yes, but I guess not. Um, no, I'm really glad there's not. My neighbor has a drone and it's noisy when you're on your back porch. I mean, there's already airport noise where we live. So and now hearing this like, like <laughs> when I was a little kid, my uh, best friend, Andy, his uncle was into model planes. I remember he was so excited. It was like for like a forever. He was building this thing. And then I remember, oh, hey, we're going to go fly this thing. You want to come? Like, yeah, got up in the air and the, the landing is 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 the hard part. Uh, you know, sure. you know, anyone can take off. That's the it's the landing. And uh, that's a key part when you, uh, you know. That's so a did, it, did it crash into a ball of flames? It, it, he, so that whole summer of building this thing and all the build up. And that was that was the end of Uncle Andy's uh, <laughs> playing adventure. But I bet it was like pretty cool for like five minutes. It was cool like, for five really minutes. Cool. Yeah. 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 And it was, I think it was pretty expensive. This was like a real. This was like a real thing. This wasn't a toy. It was, as was told to me many times, this is no toy. Our final story, the doomsday clock is kept at 90 seconds to midnight. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Guardian, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists' Doomsday Clock, which was created in 1947 to metaphorically show how close humanity is to global destruction, has been kept at 90 seconds to midnight, the same as it was last year. The clock was at 100 seconds to midnight from 2020 to 2022 before it dropped in 2023. Every year, the Bulletin's Science and Security Board sets the clock based on global threats such as nuclear war, biological threats, artificial intelligence, and climate change. Before 2017, the board, which includes 10 Nobel laureates, only told the time in whole minutes. And in 2020, it began using seconds for the first time. The clock remains unchanged from last year as the bulletin said 2024 still faces the same threats, including the U.S., China, and Russia spending more money to expand or modernize their nuclear arsenals, Ukraine war risking nuclear escalation, a lack of action on climate change, and the misuse of bio and AI technologies. The bulletin's president and CEO Rachel Bronson also cited the Israel-Hamas war, arguing it's a particular worry because it could escalate more broadly in the region, creating a larger conventional war and drawing in more nuclear powers or near-nuclear powers. According to the bulletin, the clock isn't supposed to measure threats, but rather encourage public conversation and engagement regarding the topics it cites. The clock was the furthest from midnight in 1991, when it was ticked back to 17 minutes following the U.S.-Soviet Union Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. In 2016, it was pushed back to three minutes following the Iran nuclear agreement. Thank you, Scott. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from Global News. As noted by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the fact that the ticker hasn't been moved closer to midnight doesn't mean the world is getting better. After war broke out in Eastern Europe in 2022, war has now broken out in the Middle East. And after society dragged its feet on climate policy for years, Governments are still not acting fast enough to save the planet. As new technologies and global threats continue to emerge, complacency is the enemy. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Investors Business Daily. The doomsday clock is a silly pseudoscientific scam at best and a politically biased agenda pusher and a politically biased agenda pusher at worst, likely the latter. Over the decades, the clock has been pushed closer to midnight under Republican U.S. administrations and further away during Democratic ones. 
What the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists really measures is how anxious liberals are, depending on who's living in the White House. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that the doomsday clock will reach midnight by December 2097. Good old 1991, man. That was the that was was the the year year. that there was my airplane thing. That was that that was the year year. of Uncle Andy's airplane. Yeah, the best back in the days when we could fly around. The biggest concern was uh, Uncle Andy's airplane model airplane. Man, the nineties. When he crashed it, that that probably pushed the doomsday clock up slightly. That was like okay, (laughs) yeah, it was like party's over. Yeah, point zero zero seven two seconds closer Mm, to midnight. Over Lake Winfield, there's a uh, plywood plane that just crashed. So there you go. (laughs) I hope we live to see another 1990s era. I do. In terms of everything, just everything about it. It's just the everything whole thing. about yeah. it. Mostly yeah, the I feeling know. of like, yeah, this is fun. We're just going to do fun things for a while. Here's the problem. Chills. Every, now, when you're a kid, you kind of think everything's kind of the way it's supposed to be anyway. But it turns out when we were kids, that was the way things were supposed to be. We have like the double whammy of like, Yes, you have that nostalgia when you were a kid, and it was actually better. Like both. Yeah. So you're, we're you're in a actually double, born into a double good time. whammy. Come on, millennials. I believe in us. If we can get that dollar menu back at McDonald's, that'd be good too. While we're at, you know, while we're doing stuff, let's, let's, no, I let's definitely do thought it. you were going to jump forward into like, if we could just do this as millennials, we'll save the world. But yeah, uh, you went right I into the dollar menu. Dollar menu. McDonald's. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.